Welcome everyone, episode number 38 of the Wide Lens Podcast. I'm joined here with my co-host John Sim and we're going to cover the hottest and latest topics in financial markets. We are recording this on Friday the 24th of March 2023 and we are semi-dressed up, I am anyway. Yeah, you're semi-dressed I've got a collar. Is that a collar? Yeah, yeah collar. We're dressed up today, you had a meeting, we've got meetings, looking forward to it. Um, let's quick wrap up uh, for... Markets over the last um, uh, last five days and year to date. Here is the last five days. I'm just going to zoom in on this on my screen so I can see exactly what's going on. Aussie market, I'd say flat. S and P 500 pretty flat. Nasdaq up north of one percent again for the week. European stocks up almost two percent. Emerging markets up about one point three percent, and uh, what have I included there? You know the yellow one. I think we're all good. I think I've duplicated here on uh, EM. Um, so the, probably the, the the one that I'm more interested in is this year to date one. So let's have a look at this. We've got year to date. Look at the Australian market. It has just lost all the ground from from February. Yeah, lost a lot of steam. And so now. Aussie market's down 0.63%. The S&P 500 is up almost 4%. Um, I'm going to skip the the NASDAQ for a sec because I'm curious about that. The European stock market up about 7%, still still holding up quite well. And emerging markets, I'd, I'd say flat. But check, check out the NASDAQ, right? Up over 16% for 2023 year date for the last three months. Who would have thought 2022 had, you know, the NASDAQ was down like 36% or something like that from peak to trough for 2022. And here we are, you know, not that, you know, six months later and the NASDAQ's up 16%. Like, What's your, what's your view on that? I was going to ask you what your view on it because I don't know. I don't know why the tech sector continues to rally as hard as it did. Is it because it just got hit too hard last year and people Possibly. Possibly some some are saying that if I mean I, I don't know how true true this is if people are allocating money where are they going to be allocating it to are you going to be allocating to the banks I mean the the banks are underperforming the S and P five hundred oh, look at regional banks in the U S at the moment you well the banking sector in the S in, in the U S is is pretty shit at the moment and I'll, I've got a chart on this later on which looks at relative under relative performance of the S&P 500 to, to the banking sector. Mm. The banking sector is underperforming other sectors, which is a very rare occurrence. Typically, the banking sector is seen as the the grease for the economy, which keeps the thing clicking along and running. And so whether it's investing in companies that, that are just cashed up, right? Microsoft, Apple, Google. I mean, if that's the tech, if that's, they're the companies that's dominating that particular um, sector, and if you need to decide where you're going to deploy mm. your money, are you going to put it in treasuries and bonds? Maybe but if you need to allocate it to stocks, where are you, where are you allocating it to? Yeah. Maybe you're allocating... And a lot of these businesses have cleaned, they've cleaned up their, their operations, uh, you know, spitting out free cash flow now, um, really cutting out a lot of their middle management. So much... You mean like hiring? Yeah. The, hiring, the, the 
sorry employee count yeah yeah they've 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 uh i think uh was it facebook who announced uh, more cuts in in ft um full-time employees so that they're, they're managing their operational costs uh, pretty heavily so i think maybe a lot of people are seeing value in in those businesses now you're probably right i'm just curious I don't know how much cash Apple has right now. $51 billion in cash. Wow. On go. hand. And that's, um, the, yeah, back in 2020, 2020, so a few years back, that was 62, 63 billion back in 2020. So it's come down a little bit, but it's, it's down $12 billion. So if you're investing in, I mean, why would you want to be investing in in banks, right? If your capital is at risk, as an as an equity holder, as right? an equity holder, right? And the tier one capital now um, is impacted, right? Well, who, who, you look at the Credit Suisse story, correct? And they're they're basically note holders, uh, all uh, bag holders now. Yeah, that's I've right. Got a, I've got a good Twitter Twitter um, screenshot oh okay. from later on. Let's about let's that. jump straight into it, and yeah, um, yeah over to you. So, look, the Fed's uh, Fed's having a bit of a gamble at the moment, as we saw in the last couple of days. So, Fed uh, raised their rates again, which was, I think, unexpected. Do you think it was unexpected? Well, I I thought they would hold, but it looks like they're still trying to get inflation under control. You know, know, it's quite a tight a tightrope that they're walking here between price stability and financial market stability, right? Remember the ECB raised rates. Um, after that's right. We discussed that last week. Yeah. Yep. Right after the incident. Yeah, that's right. Uh, with uh, SBB and, and Credit Suisse. So yeah. ruthless. So it looks like the US uh, are playing the same game. And, you know, whether we continue to see hikes or not, it's a big gamble. I mean, check a look, take a look at that headline. Fed ops for hike and see and gamble that crisis will stay contained. So what, what what's the bond market expecting out of this if mm. you look at look at that next graph um you, you'll see that you know you, traders don't believe the fed rate expectations are going to continue up right so they're, they're predicting a drop there but the traders have never believed what the fed was going to do for the last 12 months that's so true that's true it, there's always just been this disconnect between massive what disconnect between what the market thinks and yep. what the fed's doing so whether this actually plays out or not will be will be interesting and and who's right um, in in this scenario, that's that's the question: Is the you know the bond market right, or does the Fed still believe that you know that they're not going to be able to keep inflation under control and continue to raise rates? Right. So is this a ten year or it's a two year? Two year. Two so years. Short so, term. So it's showing two year Fed's end twenty twenty three policy rate forecast is of just five and five, a quarter percent. Five and a quarter. And what's 20. the market saying? A bit on un- market uh, saying it's gonna four point two five, so there's like a hundred points difference between what the market is saying, what the oh, Fed's saying. The Fed, Fed's that's Fed end forecast for twenty twenty four. Of twenty twenty four. So the market right now is saying three point nine. Of three ninety four. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 On the two year, <clears throat> so that's quite a divergent, I guess, expectation. Um, although not too bad, about thirty bips from twenty twenty four. If we're taking taking the, the, um, the Fed policy rate at the end of 2024. But just shows they're, they're, they're taking a bit of a, a gamble on, you know, whether they're going to break the system, right? I think it's really interesting 
how how far they're going to try and get inflation under control. Um, and if they go too far, they've got some significant risks because we've, as we saw last week, there was what five banks blow up, mm. um, and you know if that that could just be the start of uh, underlying issues in in the banking. Banking markets, right? This is Powell. We are committed to restoring price stability and all of the evidence says the public has confidence that we will do so. What fucking confidence is the public showing that <laughs> the Fed is going to be able to land this thing? It is important that we sustain that confidence in our actions as well as our words. Um, da, 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 likely to result in tighter credit conditions for households and businesses, which would in turn affect economic outcomes. It's too soon to tell how monetary policy should respond. I mean, look, the speed of the just, bank runs last week was just incredible. But did I, they just take one last shot? Like, let's just get one away. We go 25. Because they were talking 50 bips yeah, last yeah, time. That's right. right? And, they were, and they were contemplating whether they don't raise it at all. So they've gone sort of halfway between that expectation just to see if they can uh, stamp stamp out inflation, right? Um whether they whether they end up doing that, that's a, that's an interesting question. And and on your on your comment about Powell's confidence, I mean, look at the contrast to so uh, Janet Yellen had a had a speech at exactly the same time as Powell. That was a mess. That you isn't it surprising? You think that they talk to each other and go, hey, maybe we should just you know be on the same page in terms of messaging. <laughs> what did she say? She said, what'd she say? She said, look. After the after the power press conference, she said regulators aren't looking to provide a blanket deposit on insurance. Right. So, you know, as we as we saw last week, the FDIC announced that they would make all SVB and Signature Bank depositors whole. Mm. But they don't want to. They obviously don't want to make a habit of uh, making everyone whole all the time. So they've said, look, unless it's a systemic bank risk uh, to the banking financial system, they're not going to bail out all deposit holders. So there's no blanket uh, protection for everyone. Only if there's a systemic risk exception, they're going to they're gonna bail people out. So It's almost that, like when they let Lehman Brothers fail during the GFC and that was just like, it's almost like that started the, the whole thing. That's the event, right? That and, was it. and there could be another trigger event where they go, hey, you know, maybe we're not going to bail out this bank. And what's that going to do? Um, so... It's a fine line everyone's treading and, and nobody wants to make any commitments to a certain thing and, and, and everyone's still looking at, at uh, inspiring confidence. Um, but time will tell. And, and you'll just see from the next graph, if we pull that one up, in terms of the, the two comments from Powell and Yellen, what, what that did to the market. So it was... So what, what, what's it saying? Powell and Yellen comments by Axeloff. Powell says Fed officials don't see rate cuts for this year. Yeah. And, and market so went up. But what's, what's the line? Oh, that's the, that's the index. Gotcha. Yeah. Powell said Fed will raise rates if it needs to. And then Yellen says they aren't considering broad increases in deposit insurance. And basically and the, that's market the market just, just tanked. tanked. Yeah, tanked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fascinating. I read an article... Um, uh, apparently the SEC, I don't know, whoever it is, um, maybe not the SEC, I can't remember what authority it was, um, had been had investigated Silicon Valley Bank back in 2022 
uh, and they were they were pinpointing and identifying a number of risks that are that are that are evident in the, on their balance sheet. And it was apparently just going back and forth, back and forth, and nothing really happened. With they're on watch, and there was, and I can't remember exactly what, what was going on. I was um, reading the article um, the other day, and it was interesting how, like, why did those articles come out now? Like, no one, yeah, we, we never heard about this prior to the fact, and it's always after the fact that you start. Yeah, I heard to there was another reasons. one on Finding Alpha in December uh, that basically highlighted the risks of SVB. It could have been the same one. Could have been the same. Could have been review. the same same article. Uh, and that's now just come out of the woodwork. So it's probably lost between all the other articles, right? People writing articles about all sorts of businesses, uh, and you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think uh, a whole lot of people take <laughs> have pay you attention s- to that. Have you seen the me- the memes that are coming out with SVB? They're like, um, the, uh, they'll show like an image of I don't know SpongeBob SquarePants with a microphone, uh, um, magnifying glass, and it says. Um, bank assessing my income and expenses for a two thousand dollar credit application, <laughs> and then it's just, and then it's got another image. I can't remember. What it was. I should have brought one up actually. And it says SVB worried about their own balance sheet. No <laughs> issue. No issue. <laughs> <laughs> it, it almost feels like that, right? Like yeah. there's just so much bureaucracy that goes on that um, what a in, disconnect. Tr- trying to resolve anything just becomes such a mm. such a painful exercise, and it, and nobody gets anywhere. And both of us have worked in the banks. We know what it's like. It's just such a massive jungle that trying to get anything to get from one to another, it's... I mean, what I'll say, though, is that, you know, obviously here we have one regulator with APRA. Over there, you've got the Tier 1 banks, which are more highly governed than the Tier 2 banks. Um, And that's now coming forward as an issue in terms of regulation of, you know, how these guys, you know, hedge their balance sheet, what they do with their balance sheet and, and... you know, how they manage their business. So. Do, you, do you remember um, during the, the GFC, Australia spoke about how well their, our banking system was set up and how it mm. operated because we've got the, you know, the four pillars and how good that was. And then Kevin Rudd came out talking about how we wanted to create more competition and, you know, it's not so good to have um, anti-consumer behaviour and no diversification and option for, for, for banks. 15 years later, it, it happens again, and now the Australian banking system, and it, it's great. Uh, I think it works really, really well, relatively speaking. But if it's working so well, why do we sort of praise it when shit hits the fan and then we just poo-poo it when, it, when things are going really well and we're in some sort of economic boom that, that things need to change? You know, what, yeah. what do you think about that? I think it's, it's worth having you know, the four pillars there as a structural protection for the economy. And, and what that means is, you know, during the ebbs and flows, yeah, they may be not seeing, you know, the whole amount of the upside because they've got to have um, liquidity and capital protections in place. But in the same capacity on, on, on it in, 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 in the down, downturn, they're, you know, well insulated and but well don't protected. But we, don't right? we already have that? Like, what about all the other credit unions? What about all these other banks? Like, it's like we forget about all the, all the other banks and credit unions that we have. What's, I, don't, I don't understand. Do we not have enough? What, what, what do we want? That's an interesting question. Isn't that sort of a, a market driver in terms of, uh, you know, whether there's enough uh, liquidity in the market? So more banks should technically appear if there's a, if there's a greater requirement for it, right? And look, and I, don't, I don't know what the process is with licensing and, and so on. I heard it's uh, pretty difficult. Anyway, um, sorry, <laughs> back over to you. Oh, that's good. Uh, look, if, if we go to where inflation is 
based on this, um, let's look at the next graph. Underlying US inflation, it's still still quite heated up in February. Yeah. So still not quite under control. That's actually trending back up. So I can see why they've gone for another 25 bips. But maybe guess- the economy's just hot. Maybe the economy's just booming. And we've got this conundrum where we've got parts of the economy that are booming, but parts of the economy that are just shitting itself, which is tech. Uh, we talked about this f- yeah. last week or the week before. Where I, I still see this as a supply side issue, being that you know we just can't generate enough like what? produce or supply of, of goods uh, to keep to keep prices low. So there's there's you know obviously a, a limited amount of supply. Uh, causing causing this inflation of uh, you know in in the economy right so you know I think that was all started in the trade war with Trump those issues with the U S hawkish hawkish hardline views with the U S uh, with China you know causing a lot of uh, limitation and extra tax for uh, you know goods that should have come cheaply into the U S economy mm. uh, and that that has now caused an inflation in the in the cost of all, all these goods going around, right? And and the only way now that they can get this under control is to control demand, which is continually pumping up the rates, mm. reducing credit, uh, and and hopefully, eventually, reducing the actual demand for a lot of this produce or, or goods of basket or whatever, yeah. whatever, whatever it is, right? So, I mean, long story short, where could it go? Did they break the system? Think they break it, or do do they get inflation under control? Deutsche Bank had this really good chart um, that showed every going back, I think, to nineteen fifty. Every rate hike cycle, something broke. Every single one. We've never gone through a um, cycle whereby the the Fed has been ra- uh, hiking rates and yeah. nothing's broken. The end of it. Well, they say you got to break a few eggs to make some omelets. Don't know. Don't need eggs. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yes, I think so. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's that's yeah, it's an interesting one. Anyway, we'll see. We'll see how it unfolds. Um, talking about Powell, actually, uh, did you want to chat about anything else on that chart? Or no, I think, uh, I think that's that's all. So Powell, Powell had. Um, his own chart. So I'll bring this, bring this chart up from from Bloomberg now, and it is, it's called the Powell curve, <laughs> and so uh, Jerome Powell came out I think about a year ago, and he said, if it's inverted, it means the Fed's going to cut, which means the economic ec- economy is weak, uh, and it's the near term forward spread, uh, arguing that the part of the yield curve was the one worth monitoring rather than the classic recession measures further out with longer term. Um, so I think it looks at, um, I think it's a two year and three month or some, right. something like that. So even on his own measure, this, the yield, uh, the forward yield curve sh- showing us that we're negative, but he's still turning around and saying we're still, we're still hiking rates. And so it feels like there's a disconnect there. It feels like the disconnect between what he's saying, what Yellen's coming out mm. and saying as well. And just, just as, just as you almost praised the authorities for coming out and having responded so quickly within a matter of days, they took over control over the bank, or SVB in particular. They made decision really quickly. I feel like that could have blown up 
much bigger than it actually did and having, restoring confidence so quickly helped. Now coming out and making contradictory statements, I mean, obviously we saw what that, what that did to the market. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things here which why that's actually important, why that matters, is that a couple of bullet points here. When, when this market whips around wild, wildly, you've got um, fi- well, banks and finances finding themselves unsure about you know, the, the right price or the right rate to be charging uh, borrowers for, for the use of cash, obviously. I mean, it's, set, it's, a pre, it's, a, it's a measure that is used as an anchor where everyone bases borrowing rates off. Yeah. So if you don't know what that is, how do you have... How do you apply lending policy that is prudent and thoughtful uh, as it relates to margins and, and the economy and, and so forth? And so following on from there, what, you, what you'll probably start to see is um, a slowdown of lending. And if we're starting to slow down lending and we're, we're tightening lending conditions, we start to sort of turn that tap off, then you find economic conditions start drying up. And maybe that's what they want. I think maybe that's, that's what they want. maybe yeah. maybe we maybe we get to the same destination or the same outcome, but we just take a very different path. And you know, we spoke about no one saw SVB or uh, any other bank co- collapsing. No, yeah. no one was talking yeah, about any, yeah. any of that. So maybe, completely left field. Maybe maybe we're getting the same same outcome, but it, but a yeah. Different if there's path. lower consumption, there's lower demand for for products, um, and there's lower liquidity, mean, meaning less lending. Hopefully, then inflation goes down. There's no more need for the Fed to hike. And yeah, but you're, you're saying it in such a such a smooth and like orchestrated way. <laughs> I, I I just yeah. don't know if it's, it's more gonna... haphazard than that. I think so. Um, this this chart from Torsten Slock from Apollo: current conditions for buying large household goods um, is bad. High interest rate and tighter credit. Like we haven't seen the degree of the slope for tighter conditions, the last time we saw this was uh, during the GFC, yeah. 2008. Oh, yeah. So th- this is starting to push people and consumers right to the edge, I reckon. And it, it almost feels like everyone's just holding on for dear life for as long as they can, yeah. holding off, holding off, holding off. Yeah. Um, I, was, bef- I was looking at a TV actually, um, quite recently and and the price of a 75 inch uh you know oled tv it's come down 40 40 percent i reckon in the last since i've been looking at it for six months thinking about whether we we don't have a tv at home actually uh we just use the you know the ipads and all that Mm. and thinking about whether we we get one and yeah i've just been monitoring it and the price is Really come off. Doesn't, doesn't doesn't that technology 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 shouldn't too, get cheaper, cheaper? Shouldn't it get cheaper? It it's like a cheaper. deflationary uh, good rather but than it's an inflation. Very rapid in terms of the the deflation, and it feels to me. How much is a seventy five inch? Like we've got a TV we, we never use. We're getting rid of our TV as well. Yeah. Oh, one one. Well, I saw an OLED that I wanted. I think it was a seventy five inch for one point three, and you know I was looking at it previously. It was two. Almost 2.3. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's coming. Maybe there's de- maybe deflation's coming in the Australian well, market as well. Yeah. Um, financial underperformance I want to talk about now. Um, so this is from Bespoke. 
Over the last four weeks, the financial sector has underperformed the S&P 500 by over 10 percentage points, a margin that has only been experienced in five other periods. Um, so I'll, I'll bring this chart up now, and you can see the S&P 500 financial sector, and you can see the red dots where the financials underperformed the S&P 500 by 10 percentage points in a four-week span. Um there's 1991 where you see a, a rally in markets, you see a rally again in 94, you see some sideways action in 99, you see a massive decline from, what's that? That's a GFC. GFC yeah. um, I'll bring this uh, second chart up now, actually. Um, where are we? we go. So this is a look at this table. Actually, have a look at this table. Performance of financials underperform S and P five hundred by ten percentage points, and then it's showing the one, two, three, four, five, and six at the moment. It shows what happens when um, with the S and P five hundred performance, and it also shows the financial sector performance. I don't know about you. I'm finding it hard to draw a conclusion from uh, all these points of reference. That's the point. Yeah, you can't draw a conclusion, so it's very mixed. So bespoke of, of um, again, I'll, I'll I'll quote bespoke. The recent underperformance of the financials could be a canary or nothing scary at all. Unfortunately, this provides little insight from an investment perspective. But from a policymaking perspective, would seeing these numbers and the fact that two of them have occurred right before or in the early stages of the two largest bear markets in the mm. last fifty years give you any sense of pause heading into a meeting on interest rate policy? In our view, it should unquote bespoke. But I mean, that's the point. It, it's either um, done okay or on on the contrary the margin's so wide like it's it, it could do okay or the whole world could just implode yeah. we'll have another major financial financial issue uh, or crisis and what what obviously uh, the fed have chosen to do is is put the foot on the gas again Yeah. Following on from that, um, I just want to talk about a couple of things with in relation to the banks. So mid-sized banks have now come out. Um, I'll, I'll bring this headline up, actually. Uh, this is from Axios. Mid-sized banks plead for unlimited FDIC backstop for two years. So if you walked into – not that I've walked into any uh, branch in, in, in the US, but if you walk into any branch in the United States now, they've got a sign that says – FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, um, in big letters. And then it says, um, each depositor insured to at least $250,000. <laughs> so it used to be up to two hundred and fifty, And I think what this is highlighting for me, which is what you spoke about a moment ago, is the uncertainty around what all of this means for deposit depositors. Is, is there a blanket rule that, that provides full coverage for and, and every deposit will be made good or, or is it not? And I think that's causing confusion amongst the banks, amongst depositors. And I don't think you can expect depositors to go and assess the viability of a bank where they deposit their money. Definitely not. How are they supposed to do that, yeah. right? I mean, majority of them wouldn't be sophisticated enough to, to have a look through the financials and understand what's going on. Credit rating agencies can't do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fuck. That's true. Come on. That's true. Um, uh, again, from Axios, I'll bring this chart up as well. Uh, I'm just sort of keeping on the banking theme here now. 
Small banks, big problems. Share of loans held by small domestic banks by sec- select um, sectors. So obviously stricter lending standards among bigger banks are going to slow economic growth. But the big issue one here that everyone's now talking about in the US is the commercial real estate sector, which is already getting smashed with higher interest rates. Um, they, the, these regional and smaller banks make up almost two-thirds of lending to the commercial real estate sector. And so everyone's sort of now worried and we're starting to see some articles being published here in Australia about the the looming crisis as it relates to commercial real estate. Although the biggest issue in the US at the moment is office office. Yeah, and people are not estate. going back to work, right? They're not going back. <laughs> yeah. They're not going so back. So we've got all and these empty office buildings which are funded by these regional banks. Correct. Reaching their covenants and and That's right. Running into issues. Yep. Yep. And they I'll can hand back the keys in the US, <coughs> can't they? Yeah. So you've got basically banks holding title to all these securities that are potentially impacted on value as that, well. That and and that's. I don't know what's going on. My headphones today—they keep falling off. Not enough our product yeah. in there. Um, but I, I think that's a really good point you've highlighted because I I think we can draw we, people try and draw parallels between the US banking system and the Australian banking system they're very distinct and they're very different and so I don't think you can just apply whatever's going on there is going to happen it's going to happen over here Correct. as well I think that's a really good point a, a lot of it a lot of B grade office buildings are being impacted at the moment um, in, especially in the US and we're seeing it here as well where landlords are <clears throat> landlords can't just give the keys back first no, of all in Australia but landlords are trying to revamp and trying to revitalize and create a very different experience for employees to come in if they're in B, C grade buildings. So I, I thought that was interesting. I didn't realise the the scale of for which smaller or domestic banks were uh, were providing uh, finance to that those particular sectors. A um, couple of other things that I picked up. Uh, this was from Deut- uh, Goldman Sachs. Um, before I bring any of these charts up. Banks with less than $250 billion in assets account for roughly 50% of US commercial and industrial lending. They account for uh, 60% of residential real estate lending. They account for 80% of commercial real estate lending and 45% of consumer lending. Mm. I'll bring this one up against commercial real estate. Uh, It's a massive part of their economy. It is. I never realized how big it was. And so if you look up here, small and medium-sized banks, I mean, previously we were looking at small before, but small and medium-sized banks account for about 80% of total commercial real estate lending. That that could be... Their small and medium-sized banks are the size of our Of our big banks. Of our, <laughs> of our big banks. Let's put it into perspective. Yeah, yeah. But do you... I mean, if you think about this, you think about how, how important of a role these smaller regional banks play in the system... Surely the authorities and regulators are, are taking this more seriously than it appears on from the headlines that you read in the paper. Well, they, they obviously are. I mean, there's there's a whole raft of implementations. I mean, they sort of, they pressured the bigger banks to deposit that thirty billion in First Republic, right? To, yeah. To maintain confidence in the regional banking system, and they're going to have to continue to support support the system based on this. Otherwise, you'll have a, a banking-wide system collapse and, and they can't afford that. 
40% of loan officers, um, this is a, a survey that's done every single quarter, 40% of loan officers said they had tightened lending standards in the commercial real estate space during the last quarter of 2022. Um, only about 5% said they were tightening at the end of the previous year. So end of 2021, only 5%, 5% of respondents were saying they're tightening. Now almost half said they were tightening Q4 of 2022. So not only were they tightening then, now we've got this. Imagine what that's going to do to credit conditions. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm surprised they, they weren't tightening earlier than sort of late last year. Final chart from Apollo. More than $100 billion went into money market funds last week. And I came across a chart this morning uh, that was from Bloomberg. I don't have it with me. But what it had, it was money market funds and bank deposits as money market funds were going up bank deposits bank deposits going down dollar for dollar wow. and so people are just pulling money out of out of banks is it into treasuries and yeah, yeah. yes short term so it might be like yeah. 3 month treasuries to you tre- short term money market makes complete sense right you're back government you've got a government bank security back. yeah why why would you go put in a bank yeah. and so people are pulling money out and then these big guys have to go and use their cash to stump up their you know, poor cousin down the road. Um, so there's, there's a lot going on at the moment. Um, um, look, I don't know how all this is going to end, but this is as noisy as it's been for oh, a bloody long time. Long time. Not yeah. to say that it hasn't been noisy over the last six or 12 months, but it's just con- con- there's just something constantly going on right now. It just feels, it feels amplified. Oh, yeah, I think we're on the cusp of something breaking even further. I mean, these are, these are just the warning signs, right? Um, Typically, in these sort of cycles, we see a lot of warning signs flashing. Things cracks start appearing, like I said last week, and we'll, we'll see some another left side event come left through. Left field, yeah, left left field, <laughs> left field event come through in the next couple of months. Sorry, I'm I'm lacking a bit of sleep at the moment. I've got the two kids. Oh yeah, Is uh, Mel's still away. Myself? Yeah, Mel's away. Coming back, she's coming back uh, next Friday. When are your parents back? Six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Far out, so you are running solo. Fun. Yeah, running solo. Um, it's been good fun. Over to you, mate. Uh, so let's talk uh, wider in terms of geopolitical issues. And this is not an area of my an area power. that I that I have any expertise in. But let's hear what you've got. Oh, look, what's going ne- on. Neither do I. I've, I've been doing a bit of reading. I think uh, you know it's fairly fascinating what's going on in the world in terms of China, Russia. Mm. What's happening in the Ukraine? What's happening with China and and Taiwan? And now that Xi Jinping is the eternal chairman and and it's a, like a big game of chess isn't it mm. when you think about how all this flows in global politics and and how that flows to to the global economy and 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 basically globalization and trade and, and what what that's done over the last few years i mean the, the big big headline this week has been china and russia deep deepen nuclear concord that has a pentagon on edge so China and Russia, they, they had a, a, a meeting, I think, uh, earlier this week as well, which was, um, you know, looking at, at um, fostering uh, greater friendships between them uh, in terms of trade, all the rest of it, etc. I think they were looking at uh, um, whether China would, would take on a, a big, big uh, energy deal as well in terms of uh, you, uh, the, the Russian gas Mm. gas that russia has that is now not going through the uh, the Nord Stream 
uh, pipeline. Um, but one of the big ones that has been raised is obviously a nuclear. Um, I didn't know this, but did you know Russia was the world's biggest supplier of nuclear reactors and fuel? No idea. Crazy. It's like we didn't know that Ukraine was one of the largest wheat producers. Exactly. Like so, yeah, China's fast reactors, uh, they use a liquid metal instead of water to moderate uh, their temperatures, and that's based on a, a Russian technology. So if you look at the next graph, uh, Russian nuclear exports are booming. So if you look like at... Who, who would ever think about the second, third order effects of everything that's gone on? Oh, it's amazing. It's fascinating. Did you hear Saudi Arabia is buying oil from Russia? No, why are they doing that? So they're getting it at a, a massive steep discount because no one's taking Russian oil. They're taking that, using that in their local economy. So their local economy and gets selling discounted fuel. And then they sell, sell their, their fuel one. to the rest of Europe and, and to because the US no one, no one's buying. at a higher price. So there's, a, there's an arbitrage <laughs> there, right? And you, you think of, yeah, the effects of this. There's all these loopholes in these systems where, you know, people, you know, there's, there's countries that are well-placed to take advantage of. So, th- so people are still uh, not buying sanctions. anything from, from Russia? Is that still going on? Like yeah, the there's massive sanctions. So Europe right. and, and the US and I think we're, we're involved. We, we can't, we can't um, take, take on any goods So Saudi, of sanctions. Sa- the Saudis are like, just fucking buy the oil, man. Yeah, <laughs> buy it at a discount. We'll sell our oil at a premium. All our local economy runs off the cheap oil, and and we make more money. So I, I can't I can't remember the stats, but they've purchased the most oil that they've ever purchased. I don't know how many billions of barrel, millions of barrels that they've produced. Um, but yeah, all these second, third order effects are coming. China's China's rejected U.S. concerns that you know this is going to increase their nuclear stockpile of weapons. And you know they they they're trying to overtake the US as the world's top nuclear uh, well energy generator in the next decade. Who? China trying to overtake the US. Yeah. In terms of n- nuclear generation. Yeah. So whether this goes to weapons or to the power grid, uh, time will tell. But looks like us down here in Australia have our own uh, nuclear agreements in place. Yeah, I saw that. Did you see that? So just go, just going back to your US China thing, I think I think event. I mean, if you look back, you look back centuries. Different, different countries, different economies are in power. They're not; they're in power forever. Um, they they rise and they fall. And I think China will eventually overtake the US, whether it's in our lifetime or not. I've, yeah, I've got no uh, look, I think it's happening a lot quicker. Um, there was a there was a great article as well around uh, the BRICS countries. So BRICS countries are. Um, the five nation bloc includes uh, Chinese, the Russians, Indians, Brazilians, and South Africans, and they're actually looking at setting up a common single currency based on their basket of currencies as an alternative, like the euro. How did that go? Well, we'll see. So they're they're, <laughs> they're, they're committed to doing this, right? So are the so are the Europeans. So are the Europeans. Yeah, we'll we'll see where that goes. But is it you know a change in world order? You know, they're looking at that. Oh, so from that perspective, sure. I mean, we yeah joke about you know currency but yeah another headlines egypt officially becomes member of the BRICS new development bank so a lot of countries are now joining uh ndb which is a new development bank and so we've got um the united arab emirates uruguay and bangladesh all becoming part of this and and the bank's aim is to provide funding and finance to BRICS yeah. member states yeah. and that now means that BRICS has access to both North and South African Union. What does that markets. do to the, does that become, have less reliance on the US dollar? 
less reliance on the US dollar, right? So it's, yeah, it's just it's really interesting, right? Mm. Game of chess, uh, effectively, that gives, you know, other countries now another reserve currency to play off. So it might ha- happen faster than you think. There's this, so Egypt just, just joined, I think it was yesterday. Right. Uh, so there's a lot of global political changes happening and the environment seems to be constantly shifting. It's such a like area, like a specialised area of expertise. I mean, I've got no idea that Egypt joined the new development bank. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's in the paper, it's making headlines, people are aware of it. I've got, I'm not smart enough for that stuff. I'm, I want to talk about um, stuff that's uh, a bit closer to my heart, which is... Active, passive, ah, ETFs. Yeah. So I love this topic. Your your question um, uh, yesterday, sorry, last week about you know how ETFs. Um, so Standard and Poor's index versus active or the SPIVA um, uh, results they get released out every quarter. So I thought I would just go back and bring up the back end of when we haven't got uh, the first quarter of twenty twenty three yet. So I want to just bring up twenty twenty two. So this is, I'll bring this first chart up. Again, this is standard and pause. It is the percentage of large cap domestic equity funds in the US underperforming the S&P 500 every year. 2022 was the year for the stock picker, wasn't it? It was. Every year seems to be the year <laughs> of the stock picker. But um, so in the year of the stock picker, still majority, not by much, 52%, 51 point something, I'll round up to 52%, still continued to underperform the stock market. So the, the first thing I'd say is in, in such a rich and information and such a liquid market, it's just really hard to outperform something like an S&P 500 index, right? Especially when you're acting at scale, right? I think for smaller stock pickers where you can create your own liquidity, there's probably an easier way to profit sure. than if you're an active manager managing hundreds of millions of dollars or you can't move you, you, yeah. you just can't sure um the second chart i'll bring up here is the average monthly dispersion by calendar year so this basically shows the orange dotted line is the average of 23.5 percent anything above that means that more stocks are moving uh, moving around in dispersion of each other. So it, it just, sh- it, what it means is those particular years should, in theory, be easier for a stock picker to pick the stocks because, you know, not all boats are rising yes. with the tide, right? Sure. Uh, and then anything below that, you've got um, everything's m- moving less together in tighter, which means it's harder to try and individually pick, pick, right. pick the stocks, right. right? Does that make sense? Yep. So t- technically 2022 should have been a better year. Well, it was, stock it's a stock because year. 2022, 2020, 2008, 2009, and yep. 2001 and 2002 are effectively stock picker years. Um, um, this is from uh, S&P. Uh, one thing that was particularly interesting about 2022 was that most constituents of the S&P 500 outperformed the index itself. Most constituents in 2022 outperformed the index itself. This is unusual. And I'll bring this uh, exhibit up now, exhibit six, distri- frequency 
distribution of S&P 500 constituent excess returns. I'll read this from um, Dow Jones. Uh, SP Dejan. Um, Exhibit 6 provides a final perspective on the relatively abundant prospects for concentrated active US large cap stock pickers. Even for those hypothetically selecting stocks at random in most years for the past two decades and over the full period, a majority of S&P 500 constituents underperformed the index itself. In contrast, Exhibit 6 shows that in 2022, a manager selecting a random stock would have had a 59% chance of beating the S&P 500. Hmm. Meanwhile, only 51, 52% beat and a 30% chance of outperforming the S&P 500 by 20% or better compared with a 41% chance of selecting an underperformer and just a 15% chance of picking one that lagged by 20% or worse. So it's really just set up for um, stock pickers to be able to try and handpick, especially these large mutual funds or managed funds to be able to do that and 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 they go on to say in other words those picking stocks based on coin flips were statistically likely to beat the market in 2022 for better or worse spdji standard and Poor's, dow jones in um indices data suggests that most active fund managers were not picking stocks this way you should get an active manager on the show have a chat about this topic <laughs> Discuss why this why their strategy is a great a good strategy. Um, let's. I think that's. A, I think that's a great idea. We should do a, a stocks topic um, in the country. Let's do that. Let's 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 bring someone on. You know what we should do? We should bring a couple of people on and bring a passive and an active. And I would just love to hear the debate. And I'd love yeah. to hear the conversation. I'm not. I'm not saying one's right or wrong. I think there's. I think there's um, enough. Um, uh, enough ways to construct a portfolio that allows you to do both in different asset classes. And we talked last week about un- unlisted assets, fixed income assets, where Active clearly has um, done much better than what the index would have. But I'm only talking about the S&P 500 here, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm not talking about any other asset classes. Um, a couple of things that you may or may not have seen. I'll bring this table up now. Um so if you were one of those money managers that were able to outperform the market, your ability to be able to be consistent in your outperformance appears to be very, very limited. So according to the report, uh, of the 29% of the, SM, of the 791 large cap equity funds that beat the S&P 500 in 2019, 75% beat the benchmark again in 2020. So that's that sort of second blue and orange mm. column you can see. But only 9.1% or 21 of those funds were able to extend the streak of outperformance into 2022. So there's this, you know, quartile leadership where um, funds land. So you might be – and typically what happens is you have a, a really poor manager who's in bottom quartile results for the year. They then start to see massive outflows. And, you you know, what happens after a really bad year, we just talked about the tech – um, the Nasdaq 100 having a really shit year in 2022, number one sector leading in 2023. Yeah, outperforming in 2022, you're the underperforming in 2023, and there's years and years of data that 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 shows that that happens consistently. Yeah. Um. Finally, last chat I want to bring up here. It's I mean, having said that, 2022 it was getting fairly frothy. Where twenty? That's 2021. 2021. 
2021 was frothy. On the first January 2022, the market created the all-time high peaked, and it was downhill from there. Yeah, yeah. So what are you saying? Just saying, yeah, it's not not an easy environment to make money in a. But it never is. <laughs> it's never like when, like we we're just talking today about how uh, how noisy the market is, yes, and we're saying yes, not that yes. it hasn't been noisy. Like it's just, I feel like constantly noisy. And the more you know, the Federal Reserve and the FDIC and SEC and the RB and central banks and authorities get more and more involved in trying to control financial markets. It's just going to. I feel like it's going to be constantly noisier. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a hell of a lot of volatility at the moment. Last chart, S&P 500. Uh, most S&P 500 constituents underperform the index. Uh, so in this report, I'll read this out and hopefully it explains it. S&P 500, oh, sorry, Standard & Poor's found that only 22% of stocks in the S&P 500 outperformed the index itself from the year 2000 to 2020. Does that number not fascinate you? Yep. That's 22% of stocks. One-fifth of stocks within the index outperformed the index itself. Over the measurement period, the S&P 500 itself gained 322%, while the median stock rose by just 63%. Look at that tail. Like, everything's skewed mm. to the left. Everything's yeah. skewed yeah. to you losing. Yeah. Like, how do you then pick the minority of winners on the tail right hand tail of that of that distribution not easy so anyway there are facts they are not my opinions i'm no, just showing I, you the numbers yeah. i'm showing you the facts uh, and so that's what data think, makes sense I, I think that's why it's really hard and and so you, you're absolutely right i think there is opportunity i think there is there will be ability to to do better or or, or what have you but the probability of that happening in any given year is low. low. If you did it in that year, the probability of that happening again the year after is even lower. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got to go to the likes of Bridgewater, to the, you look at Berkshire Hathaway, you look at some of these hedge funds that have been around for long periods of time. Sure, there are those outliers, but they're not taking your money. No, no, that's right. What do you do? Yeah, what do you do? Any other comments? Compounding is king. Look, yes. I think even with the issue with like active funds management is that they're all like the fund managers are also at the mercy of the investor and the unit holders. Yeah. If if they have one poor year of performance, they can't control outflows. No. And once you, what happens when you control outflows? It's just it's a downward That's spiral, right. right? And whether it's active management or passive management or whatever fund you've picked, I mean there are some shitty funds out there that have underperformed severely but i think as long as you allow your money to, to to compound you regularly contribute and you don't keep chopping and changing like the odds are man i reckon i reckon you'll do yeah you i reckon do. you'll do okay you do you do well you got anything for director's cuts no All right. um you got nothing there uh, i think i've got one tweet in there that we that we talked about early on bring it up which is uh yeah breaking market news so if you have a look at have a look at that one. Swiss Swiss regulator fin, Finmar Credit Swiss has been given the instruction to fully write down its AT1 instruments and immediately <laughs> notify the affected bondholders. Tier two bonds won't be written down. I love the first yeah, comment. First comment. Bag holders, <laughs> not, not bondholders. Bond yeah, I was. I had a little laugh uh, <laughs> reading that. 
How, like, how do you make sense of all of this? Like, it's almost like anything is circumstantial to the extent that whatever, whatever is going on for this event or this issue, we'll decide what happens. It's not like it's a... Uh, you can't... There's no... Uh, what's the word? There's no precedent there's, for anything. Yeah, there's no playbook for it. So they're, no. they're just basically trying to put out fires as they can. And I guess the risk that people are taking... Uh, the perceived risk is now a lot different from the real risk. 100%. Uh, that people are taking for these products. So what, what do we do? Go and buy subordinated notes? Subordinated bank, bank notes? I'd want to be, yeah. First <laughs> Mate, mortgage you want to be... Or, <laughs> or a deposit holder up to 250000 Or 250000 <laughs> Or you want to go buy... Or buy Bitcoin. Well, you can go buy Bitcoin or you can go buy your tech stocks that have billions of do- $52 billion dollars in cash. Cash, right. Um, one thing, uh, this is the UK CPI that just came out, 10.4%. They are hurting, man. And yeah. it looked like it peaked, but it seems to have clicked up again. Well, this um, goes back to the food story we did a couple of weeks ago. The cost of food and non-alcoholic drinks rose 18%, mm. the most in 45 years, while the 12.1% annual rise in inflation at restaurants and hotels was the biggest since 1991. Is it is it a supply or is it real? Supply issue. You think it's supply still? Yeah, massive supply issue. Food prices soared, including for vegetables that have been in short supply in the so UK. I was speaking to a friend who had a, um, a manufacturing. They were manufacturing a food product mm. that that was using um, sunflower oil or something like oh, that. Oh yeah, and they've been told by the manufacturers, "Hey, we've run out of sunflower oil because." I didn't actually know this. So, in addition to wheat in the Ukraine, um, they do sunflower. Do they? Do they? They're a big Come producer. on, man! Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. And there's a shortage of sunflower oil, and so now they've got to substitute other oils. What's wrong with olive oil? Are we short Too of expensive. olive? Too expensive. To manufacture. What about canola? Is that cheap? Oh, maybe canola. Maybe it was canola. Vegetable oil. Canola. Yeah, some sort of vegetable. Anyway, so now they've got to redo taste tests. Yeah, uh, re- the production. The, yeah, it's, it's just changed. a nightmare. Change the game. You can't just change ingredients. You can't just replace ingredients like that. There you go. So this is this is an issue, and it's happening around the world, causing massive spikes in food prices. So yeah, we, we did so see the price of that. we did see the price of olive oil going up. Remember mm. the pizza index? Yes, the pizza index. So cooking at I home. I haven't made pizza for a while. Clearly. After, after that discussion, <laughs> I haven't made pizza since. Just, I'm just buying Domino's, <laughs> mate. 10 bucks. Anyway, um, one other I had, I'm going to bring this chart up now. This is median asking rent in the US uh, from Redfin. You can see it peaked, uh, when is that? Like earlier this year and it's come down. The reason why I wanted to pick this up was I feel, I still feel like the Australian economy is a good, at least a year behind the US in terms of everything. Property prices, um, inflation, uh, interest rates, uh, employment, unemployment, just ma- ma- major economic indicators. And obviously, we've got a bit of a rental crisis here at the moment. The US had that months ago. Yes. It's peaked out. It's coming down now. And I want to just bring this up because I think my if I'm, if I'm going to take uh, a punt and roll the dice, I'm going to punt that the Aussie rental market is going to turn around. What drove a lot of this is a lot more... Um, 
building development, building activity in the yeah, US. Okay. So you've got more supply, supply coming onto yeah. the market. Once we see that coming through the Australian market as well, I think Should we need to see up. finance. Yep. Yes. The caveat, however, is 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 that the we've got the fixed rate cliff. The fixed rate loan cliff. Oh, it's happening very soon. It's an issue. Yeah. June, July. July, June quarter is when they're, they're maturing. So not long to go before uh-huh. we see what the full impact of that is. Maybe it's a non-issue. Maybe it's an issue. Who knows? Who knows how, um, how, uh, how we're going to deal with it all. Uh, let's wrap up. Um, tips and recommendations. You got anything? Not for this week. All right. So I went to a restaurant yesterday. Oh. It's a fancy place you would go to, Society. Oh, yeah. I love Society. Um, what do you think about that? You, Fantastic. You like it? Yeah. I mean, good. they lost their head chef. Uh, I think they had a falling out. All oh, right. Okay. Um, but that was very close to when it first started, and, <clears throat> and I went post that, and, and the food was still delicious. Yeah, really good. How's the ambiance? Oh, it's all about the ambiance. It is. It's good. The isn't service. It? The ambiance. Service is very good. I yeah, must admit, yeah. the ambiance is very good. They've got the, you know, the the, the dark the dark yeah. woods. I mean, they uh, say you eat with your eyes as well, as much as your your mouth and and smell. Yeah, so. but it's bloody dark. You can't see anything in there. <laughs> you can see the food. Yeah, yeah, you can see the food. So if you're if An you're experience yeah okay it, it was great experience like food maybe if you're eating non-vegan food I'm sure it's very very good but the vegan food was like it's pretty meh okay I'd say below average right yeah they tried chefs to chefs fan- obviously aren't vegan clearly look they were very they tried to do all these things but it was just yeah it just wasn't wasn't, wasn't your jam no nah, it wasn't my jam okay wasn't my jam so. If you're vegan, yeah, don't go to don't go to society. Um, I'm sure it's very expensive. They do good, they do good prawns and uh, lobster and, and other. Last week was International Prawn Day. Yeah. Maybe they had something going on at, at society. All right, hit us up on LinkedIn, Spotify, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast. I don't know. Uh, I think Spotify is still the biggest listener listenerage, listener cohort. Yeah. Um, YouTube, LinkedIn, check us out, and we'll catch you guys next week. My name is Robert Baharian, and I'm the founder and CEO of Baharian Wealth Management, AFSL 526-798. The information contained in this podcast by me and or our guests may include general advice and does not consider your personal circumstances. You should seek personal advice from a registered financial advisor who can consider whether the general advice is right for you.